You know, I think we should start a little bit different today. I've never seen so much excitement as what I saw during the offering. Can I just bring the offering team back out? We want to take a second offering. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I bet you this is going to be some offering because you guys were really abuzz, man. I don't know what it was all about. We're continuing our series called Till I Met You. And this series is about the fact that each of our lives, in God's sight, it represents a story. Uh, we read the stories of people in the Bible, and it shows that God really values our lives, our stories. Uh, your life, my life is an ongoing story. And there's meant to be a chapter in every human's life where we reconnect in this world with our creator. And by reconnect, I mean we return to our creator in trust. That kind of childlike trust that Adam and Eve, the first couple, had before they broke trust with God and started to go their own way and do their own thing. And so we've had a portion of scripture that we've looked at through this entire series. It's kind of the overarching theme. It's from a New Testament book called Colossians, the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in a Greek city called Colossae. And he's speaking of Christ if you read the verses that go before. And you always should do that when you read your Bible, read context, the verses before and after. But anyway, it says, For by him, meaning Christ, were all things created. So we learn here, Jesus is the creator of the universe. All things created which are in heaven and which are in earth, things visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and that is speaking of angelic civilizations and hierarchies and governmental structures. All things were created by him, and then what we've emphasized each week, and what is that last three words? For him. You and I were made not just by Christ, but for Christ. He made you. He made me for yourself. The most normal thing for a human being is to have the most intimate of relationships with Christ our creator. It's not just for you know, some religious elitist. It is for every ordinary human being. So it goes on to say, Christ existed before all things, and in union with him, all things have their what? Proper place. My life finds its proper place. I find harmony. Everything starts to sink together in my life when I order my life according to his word and his will. So we've emphasized that during this series, uh, we wanted to carve out this time, take this opportunity so that each of us could actually put into writing our own story. And each week we've collected more and more of these and reading some of these has just been uh, really extraordinary for me. But, you know, I asked you last week, and so I'm not catching you off guard when I do this. Even though many have written their story, there are still some that have not. And we showed you the pattern of the story. It goes like this. What was my life like before Christ? Who was I? What was I, what was I like? How did I come to Christ? And then finally, my life since trusting Christ. It's real easy. It's real easy three chapters. We have this modeled, by the way, two different times by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. So, here we go. Now, mind you, mind you, lots of people wrote theirs out and turned them in. How many in here, though, of you guys have still not written out your story? Let me see your hands. Hold them high. Oh, you're such bad, bad, bad people. <laughs> what I've said each week, <laughs> all kidding aside, um, if you do this, 
I guarantee you, you're going to find it to be a, a very valuable, enriching experience. There's something about sitting down, getting alone with God, thinking through your life, and then taking a pen and actually writing it out so, so you can see it with your own eyes. That's value number one. It's going to kind of solidify your own spiritual journey and experience. Value number two. This will give you a tool that you will, God will give you an opportunity, particularly if you pray for some, he'll give you an opportunity where you can share your simple story with another human being. And it just might be one that transforms somebody else's life. These stories that people read in the Bible, they still go, to, go on transforming lives to this day. So we have this week and next week is the end of the series. Please just take the time one little sheet of paper. I'm going to show you how short it can be. I'm going to read you one of our folks that turned in their story this week. Her name is Amanda. And when you turn these in, you can choose to have it anonymous or you can say, hey, I don't want mine read or whatever it is. But anyway, here's Amanda's story to show you, just to show you how short you can make it. Look at that. It's not even a whole sheet of paper. Here we go. Amanda starts. She says, I was sexually abused by supposed trusted adults in my life. And then I gave myself away just to feel real love. I became a people pleaser, never feeling I could do enough to truly be loved. I found myself pregnant three months after graduating from high school. I remember being looked at. This part is very uh, important for where the message goes today. I remember being looked at so differently by peers and family members. I even began to hate myself. I was so hurt, lost, and confused. What I had done would change my life forever, and I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. I was attending FCF church with my father, but it was out of obligation for about three years prior to this. But then I started coming back to church during my pregnancy, and for the first time, I felt a real connection to God. I had finally realized that I had put myself in a situation that I could not figure out on my own. I needed him. So here you see her before, you see her turning, you know, where she gets back to Christ. She says, now I thank God for that pregnancy. My life was in fact forever changed. I look at my children and I understand the love he has for them and me. I'm still a young Christian working toward becoming a true disciple, but I know my worth is found in him. I'm a daughter of Christ despite my past. Keep that in mind as to where this message goes today. She was shocked kind of by the way her peers and even her family categorized her when she had the pregnancy, but now she's got a new identity that she's internalizing. I'm a daughter of Christ despite my past. I continue to work hard alongside Christ. Together we're chipping away at my sinful nature. I now happily attend church every Sunday. I've made connections and friendships here, joining various growth groups and serving, the different area, serving in different areas in the church. And now I want to be a joy and a light to all those I meet, but no longer to fill me up with love but to fill them with the love of Christ. So here's Amanda's story. It's, uh, it's short, and yet it's very powerful. And like I say, if you don't write it, you probably won't be able to share it when the opportunity comes. And let me go further. If you pray for God to give you opportunities, just the right person, just the right time, to share your story, I guarantee you he'll give you those opportunities. And you might be shocked to see how just your story the activity of God in your life starts to work in the heart of another person. Well, today's story from Scripture, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And if you would turn to page 1167 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair or Luke chapter 7, 
We're going to start in verse 36 and go 36 through 50. And the, the title today is, uh, Till I Met You, I Was So Despised. We're going to meet a lady that was categorized, categorized and condemned by people of her day. And yet she was accepted and affirmed by Jesus at the same time. So it's Luke chapter 7. And we'll start reading in verse 36. Now, as we go through these verses, I'm going to stop at times, do a little bit of explanation, and then we'll go on. So here we go. It says, now one of the Pharisees, Pharisees, these were the uh, conservative religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were considered the elite authorities of God's work and will and ways. And yet we'll see they were really not uh, familiar with God as he actually was. It says, now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. Let me pause again. Now when it says a woman of the town comes into this dinner and that she's a sinner, we read the words and we're like, eh, everybody's a sinner, so what? It meant something different in those biblical days. A sinner was someone who didn't even attempt to try to keep the Mosaic law. In other words, the, the Jewish scriptures of that day, this was a person who just felt, I'm not worthy, I'm not even going to try. Why should I try? Because I'm never going to succeed, I'm never going to be acceptable to God. So she probably didn't go to synagogue, she probably didn't uh, apply the appropriate sacrifices when she sinned, she didn't observe the festivals and feast days, the law in any way. When you didn't observe or try at all in that day, you were labeled, you're a sinner, which meant, you know, you're kind of condemned, you're almost beyond redemption. So that, that's the significance of that term that's used there. She was just not any run-of-the-mill sinner. So she comes into this dinner uninvited, and she's, she's, verse 38, as she stood behind him, meaning Jesus, so she's standing behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with perfumed oil. One more pause. Now, when we read this as Westerners, it, it's a little confusing trying to get what was going on here how many of you when you eat a meal typically you are sitting in a chair and a table is in front of you can I just see your hands okay so your feet are under the table and the table's in front of you you know in this thing it says this woman comes in and she's behind Jesus and she's weeping on his feet and the Pharisee evidently sees this notorious woman come in but Jesus doesn't seem to be initially aware. And so we read this as Westerners, and we're like, well, how did she get on the floor under the table? Was she like crawling, crawling around? It's a weird picture. How did she get to Jesus' feet? And yet she's behind Jesus. Well, here, here's the solution to that. This is the way they typically ate in those biblical days. Do you see how they're kind of leaning on one elbow and their legs are out where? Behind them. There's the picture. This woman would have come in behind Jesus She's weeping on his feet. She's wiping it off with her hair. She's got this perfumed oil that she's putting on his feet. So Jesus would not at this point have even necessarily looked at her. So that's, that's how this thing happens. Now let, let's go on. So now you've got the, the picture. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. So now Jesus is going to give a little parable, one of those powerful little uh, teaching models that Jesus used, a little parable to Simon the Pharisee who's disgusted that Jesus is allowing this woman to touch him. He says, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. When they could not pay, keep that in mind, neither of them could pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Jesus asks Simon. Simon responds, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward who? Up to this point, Jesus has not looked at the woman. This is really powerful if you get this in mind. He's just been looking. The woman's still weeping, wiping his feet with her hair, putting the, the you know, perfumed oil on. And he's having this discussion with Simon, the uh, proud, arrogant Pharisee. Now he turns and looks at the woman, takes his eyes off of Simon, the Pharisee, but he's still talking to Simon the Pharisee, but he's looking at the woman. Keep that in mind, that mental image in your mind. So let's pick up again in verse uh, 30, excuse me, 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, so he's looking at the woman, but he's saying to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Now pause one more time. What was this about? These were common customs of the day. This is the way you showed politeness, common courtesy to a guest. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus, who was known to be a teacher, a rabbi, he should have been treated with the appropriate courtesy conduct. He should have been given water as he came in to wipe off his feet right away because you're, you're living in a dusty climate. They're, they're wearing sandals and things. That was what you did for an honored guest. You should have given him a kiss. Jesus should have been kissed as he came in. He didn't do that. He should have given him some oil. Uh, hot, dry climate oil was common to give to a guest. And so this Pharisee showed right from the beginning no respect whatsoever for Jesus. This was not a sincere dinner. This was a, a kind of an attempt to tangle Jesus up in something, to find grounds to accuse him. Jesus knows all this, and now he's applying this backward. Now let's, let's pick up one more time. Verse 47. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which were many are forgiven. Thus she loved much. He's, Jesus says, because her sins were so many and they're forgiven, that's why she loves so much. He goes on. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Remember the parable. Two debtors, one owed 500 silver coins, one owed 50. Neither could pay back. Both were forgiven. Jesus says, which one would love more? The one that owed the most. Now he's applying it to this woman. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's, it's an amazing picture of what 
the revelation of God is really like. This, this is the true image of God being exposed to human beings. This Pharisee who had spent most of his life studying the Old Testament, probably had it memorized, who scrupulously tried to keep all the rituals and ceremonial laws, taking his animal sacrifices at the appropriate times when he sinned and so forth. He didn't understand that God was sitting at his table. He didn't understand that the person that he had set up to insult and catch in some kind of a religious theological argument was God the creator himself. You must always incorporate that when you're reading the gospels, that these people are meeting God in the flesh. And the truth is, this guy, this Pharisee, this religious guy, this guy that was saturated with scripture didn't like God when he had him right there face to face. Ironically, this woman who knew, knew probably very little, if anything, of the scripture, who didn't even try, she felt, you know, it was an impossible thing. She could never earn approval with God, so she didn't try. Interestingly enough, she liked God when she met him. She seemed to understand him way better than this religious guy. And she gets the affirmation, she gets acceptance. Even though this woman was categorized and condemned by the people of that day, particularly the religious, she's accepted and affirmed by Jesus who is God. And this is a big thing because Jesus came to reveal this is what God is really like. This is the full revelation of the heart of God. Why did he do this? Because he wanted to bring human beings, all human beings, back into a trust relationship with himself. That if he would reveal what he's really like, that his almighty power is always bridled by unselfish devotion and love to those that he created, that he would win back the trust of some of us. But here's this woman, categorized and condemned by people of her day, and particularly the religious people, and she finds herself given these words of Jesus. He says, you know, daughter, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, what do we know by these words? And Jesus says, to her, your sins, sins are forgiven. Why did this woman show up? Where did she get the audacity to come to this, <laughs> this dinner uninvited and the dinner of a Pharisee who she knew would despise her, categorize and condemn her? Where did she get the audacity? Well, the only reason she would possibly do this is she obviously was already very familiar with Jesus, familiar with his teaching, familiar with the revelation that he had already been given about God, that God comes into this world saying, forgiveness is available to each and every one of you. Let there be no guilt and fear barrier between you and your God. Jesus came proclaiming, your sins can be forgiven. You just need to be willing to return to him and trust. He's not gonna force you. He's not gonna strike you down with fear. He wants you to see that he's good, that he's trustworthy, that he loves you more than you love yourself, that he knows what's best, wants what's best, and waits until we return in trust. This woman knew the message. And that's why Jesus said to her, your, your faith, your trust, it saved you. Why does faith save us? Is it something arbitrary? Could God have made up any kind of condition? All through the scripture we read the human beings are saved. They enter back into the relationship with God for which they were created. They're given forgiveness of sins. They're given immortality, eternal life as a free gift when they return to God in trust. Well, well why is that the condition? Is it arbitrary? Could it have been anything? No. Listen, it is necessary for us to be obedient to our creator because that's the only way that life can work. The reason our world is the hellish, chaotic, violent, awful place that it is today is because we're full of seven billion people who occasionally do whatever in the heck we want. Let's be honest, we all do it. We do whatever we want. And so the only way that the world for eternity can ever be harmonious and people can be safe and loved and valued and cherished is when everybody adjust themselves to God's word and God's will. It's the only way life works. And so when you think about how do you get free will 
agents, whether they're angels or humans, to come to an obedient relationship with God, there's only three things God could use. He could use force. You know, he could turn us into robots and just make us do his will, and then everything would be peachy keen and harmonious, but we'd be robots. He, he could use fear. He could say, if you don't obey me, I, I'm going to strike you down with leprosy, or I'm going to hit you with a lightning bolt or something like that, but we'd hate him because we don't like to be bullied by anybody. Or he could use faith. He could reveal himself to be so loving, so good, so trustworthy that he wins our trust, he wins our confidence, he wins our reliance so that we freely and fully follow him forever. That's why the condition of salvation in scripture, it's always faith. We have trivialized it, minimized it, put it into some kind of weird slogans and I fear, I fear after 35 years of leading churches, I fear there are multitudes that sit in churches like this Sunday after Sunday packed in who really truly don't yet have a real relationship with Christ in their story, that time where they truly turn to their creator Christ in trust, in faith. It never really has happened because they think it's some kind of a formula. They think it's some kind of a, a pass card to get into heaven and escape you know, judgment. Anyway, this woman already had it. Jesus just affirms it right in the face of this guy. But we learn a lot in this process that even when others categorize and condemn us, that's never the way that God sees us. Here's another verse that just kind of reinforces the attitude of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. It says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began muttering and complaining, this man accepts and welcomes who? Sinners. And he eats with them. They were outraged. He eats with them. The one Pharisee says, if this guy were a prophet and he, and he knew what kind of woman it was touching him, he would have nothing to do. Jesus, by eating with sinners of his day, he was giving his full identification with them. When you had a meal with somebody in those days, that meant that you're fully embracing them, that, that you're one with them. And this is the truth. God welcomes sinners. He welcomes people that understand we're broken. We're not what we should be. We're not what we want to be. We, we, we hurt ourselves inadvertently. We hurt others inadvertently. And we need someone to rescue us. We, we need to be kind of turned around and redirected. And this woman understood, but the Pharisee didn't. Now let's go back to that parable. Remember the parable? Jesus tells Simon, he says, listen, there's two debtors. Well, the one debtor that owed the 500 silver coins, that's meant to illustrate the woman. And the one that owed 50, that's meant to illustrate the religious guy. So Jesus says that the bottom line was they both couldn't pay. They were both incapable of fixing their debt or the way we might say it, of fixing themselves. So along the way in life, sooner or later, we all have our turn at getting categorized. And condemned. Let me show you a little drawing I came across. Think back in your life, maybe your childhood, maybe you're in your own home growing up, and you might have heard some of these terms leveraged against you. You know, somebody might have said to you, you're worthless. Or you might have went to school and somebody said, you're ugly, you're pathetic, you're useless, you're, you're a loser, you're a failure, you're hopeless, you're stupid. And when we hear these caustic words, you know that old thing kids used to say, stick and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. You know it, and I know it. Sticks and stones, you can get over pretty quick. These words grab hold of our soul, and they release a contaminating power, a tormenting power that probably is still guiding, propelling some of our lives this very morning. 
There's usually two ways we react. We're, th these are such foreign things to our soul. Our soul was made in the image of God. Our souls are made so delicate that when these kind of caustic things are said to us, when we're condemned and we're categorized like this, it just shocks our system. We were meant to live in a world where we were just affirmed and loved and safe and secure all the time, and, and this doesn't work in our souls. And so what do we do? We usually do one of two things when these things occur, when we've been categorized and condemned. We either, first of all, accept it as truth. Somebody says we're a failure, we're a loser, we're ugly. We embrace it, we internalize it, and we live the rest of our lives seeing ourselves just like that and usually living it out as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some of you got to sit here right now and you got to think about that because that's actually been what your life has been about. The second way we react to these things, because they're too painful to ignore, we might think we're ignoring them, but we can't, is we set out to disprove them. We say, you might call me a loser. You might say this about me or that about me. You may categorize, condemn me, but I'm going to prove that it's wrong. And we spend the rest of our life on a quest to disprove whatever it was that we were categorized and condemned. And that's still living under the sick control of those caustic evil things that human beings say to one another. Now, folks, let's be very honest about this. We're no different than those Pharisees in a lot of ways. You know and I know there's been many a time in your life, many a time in my life where I too have categorized people and condemned them. We want to always separate. We always want to divide. We always want to, you know, target people, label people. Why is it? What the heck is wrong with us? Why do we do this? I mean, what, what is it that makes us do this? We know it hurts us when it's done to us, and yet we do it. First service, I actually had him do this. How many of you will acknowledge today, you'll humbly acknowledge, yes, I do, I have, I do occasionally categorize and yeah, condemn people. Now see your hands? Yeah. Well, I think if we analyze it honestly, the main reason we do it is because we actually haven't clarified in our own minds what is the source of our value. What's the basis of our security? What's the basis of our worth? Listen to me carefully. Until you really get it deep in your soul that your worth, your value is based on the fact that you were made by Christ and for Christ and that he went to a cross and died to prove the depths of his value, how much, or the depths of his love to show your value. Until you base your value and your worth on those things, you're always going to be trying to compare yourself favorably to somebody else. That's why we categorize people. That's why we condemn people. Because for a short time, it makes us feel a little bit better. I'm a little bit superior to them. And so I feel a little bit better about myself. That Pharisee felt great about himself. He just thought he was God's gift to humanity. And he loved being able to scowl down upon that woman. And he thought he was scowling down upon Jesus too because Jesus loved the woman and accepted her. One of the terrible things about categorizing people and condemning them is not only do we hurt them, we hurt ourselves, but, but we, we, we give an image of God. We give this picture. This Pharisee was giving a picture of what, what God was like. He, he was saying in essence, God hates these kind of people. God condemns these kind of people. That was the image that he was giving off. And Jesus, who was, was God, was showing that that was completely and exactly the opposite. There's a, uh, a lady named Benet Brown, and she gave a talk, a TED Talk, sometime back. I believe it was in 2013. It was called The Power of Vulnerability. The thing was watched like millions of times, literally millions and one interesting part of the talk, she said this. She said, talking about how, how we do the us and them thing, oh, those people, you know, we're not them. The truth is, we are the others. 
Most of us, let this sink in, folks, because this, this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people. You know, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. That's what the Pharisee couldn't get. The Pharisee thought that he was superior, he was better. He had earned a blessing from God. And he didn't understand in Jesus' parable, Jesus was saying, look, man, you're broke too. You're sick and in need of rescue too. You need just as much rescue as her, maybe not quite as much, but you're, you're both lost. How many of you know that if I were to challenge uh, this man, yeah, anybody know who he is? Michael Phelps. If I were to challenge him in a swimming contest, <laughs> you would be putting your money, if you were a betting person, that he would win the contest. How many would just say, Randy, we like you, man, but I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to bet that Michael Phelps wins the contest. Can I see your hands? You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's okay. <laughs> I almost drowned in a wave pool. It's, true. It's, it's a true story. I wish it weren't true. I was too Jeep to buy the inner tube, and I got caught out there when the wave machine kicked on, and I was locked, man. It was bouncing off the sides of the walls, and I'm, I'm digging away, and, and I couldn't move, and I was just at this point to scream, help, help. But I was too embarrassed. I said, no, I'd rather drown. <laughs> so I'm not much of a swimmer. <laughs> but you'd be wrong about betting on Michael Phelps because Winning the contest, you see, you didn't hear what the rules of the contest were. You, you didn't hear the whole story. You didn't hear what you have to do to win. The contest starts in, on the shore of Ocean City, me and Michael Phelps, both in our bathing suits. <laughs> and to win, you have to reach the shore of England. <laughs> Roughly 3,000 miles. He's not going to win either. I don't care how many gold medals he has. He's not going to win. That's what Jesus was trying to illustrate. That's what the Pharisee didn't get. That even though he might have been a little better than that woman from the outward perspective, inside he had the same need for God's rescue. We are a people that are broken inside by sin. We want to do good a lot of times, but we don't do it. Consequently, we, we can't always control our actions. We need God to rescue us. We need him to forgive us. And that's the point in Jesus' entire depiction of the difference between the two uh, that were in debt in that parable here's a good description from Luke 18 of the way these guys felt about people and themselves he said Jesus told this parable to certain people yet another parable later on who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone that's a big word everyone else with what disgust I hate to say it but sometimes church people do that we 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 build some kind of a standard like going to church. If I go to church every Sunday, I'm a good person now. And they are bad. They do not go to church. And, and this is just stupidity, but we do it. So Jesus is trying to say, come on, let's, let's be sensible. Let's look at things the way they are. So when we are categorized and condemned by others, it's not the end of the story. 
but it's a dangerous trend, and you, yourself, and I tend to do it too. There's a guy, his name is uh, David Livington Smith. He's a professor, and in a book called Less Than Human, he writes these words. He says, even ordinary people, that's you and I, we're just ordinary, even ordinary people can demean, enslave, and kill other human beings. It all starts with one important ingredient, the dehumanization of the victims. The Pharisee treated this woman like she wasn't a real human being, like she didn't have feelings, like she didn't have hopes and dreams, like she didn't want to be treated with respect and love. Once we dehumanize somebody, once we start treating them like a category and it's something that's condemned, we can do almost anything to them. Smith goes on and says this. He says, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators. So this thing that the Pharisees were doing, and this thing that you and I sometimes do, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dark thing. It's a, it's a terrible thing. And the fact that we do it alone should make us aware that we are greatly in need of not just God's mercy, but in his, his restructuring of us inwardly as human beings. So she's categorized and condemned by others, but she's accepted and affirmed by Jesus. Can you imagine what this woman must have felt? I, I mean, I, I have lived this thing, this particular scripture so many times. When Jesus fought for her and defended her before that kind, this is a woman who all of her life has had people just sneering at her and she's been mocked and condemned and all of a sudden here's, here's God in Jesus and he's defending her and saying, you're mine. Your trust to save you. Your sins are forgiven. You need that experience personally. You, you need that. I need that experience to know that the creator of this universe says to us in a very personal way, your sins, those ones you feel so bad about that you don't feel you'll ever forget, they are forgiven. And your trust in me, your faith in me, it's made you whole. Come on, my son, my daughter, just, just, just get up. Let's walk together. Let's rise. We're going we're gonna to help you grow and develop and be who you were always meant to be and do what you were always meant to do. Those are powerful words once they get inside of us and they make us fully human and fully alive. There are too many people that settle in this life. We settle with this life as it is. We settle with this world as it is. And we're not going to change this world as it is, but we can sure as heck change ourselves if we let Christ have his way in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus said this in Matthew 21. He said, then Jesus told them, you can be sure that the tax collectors, I did another message in the series about tax collectors, they were also considered beyond redemption. The tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you ever will. He was talking to these same guys, these Pharisees. Why? Why would the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before them? Why? Because these Pharisees didn't understand that they needed God's mercy and his grace. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the hated ones, the sinners like this woman, they did. They understood the need. Last week, I gave you guys this image of those people that get caught in those flash floods. Any of you ever been caught in one of those flash floods in your car? Just curious. You know, you always see them on TV. They're caught in the flash flood. And so where are they? They're up on top of the roof of their car. I don't know how exactly they get up there, but they get on the roof of their car because they're afraid the water is going to come sweep them away. Rightly so. I mean, these waters are very fast. If you get caught in the water, it'll just ram you into something. You can't swim against it. But, but let's, just, let's just play with that image a little bit for a minute. Supposing that I'm caught in the flash flood and I'm on the roof of my car and here comes the helicopter. How many of you know Randy Dandy? He's grabbing that rope, man. He's going <laughs> to wrap it all. I mean, I'm going to secure everything because I know, 
I cannot save myself. I know I need rescue. But let's just suppose, let's just suppose Michael Phelps was on the roof of his car. And maybe it's one of those evenings where he was doing some weed, you know? <laughs> you ever consider that? The man won all those gold medals doing weed. How many would he have won if he hadn't been doing the weed? Uh, anyway, <laughs> he's on his roof and maybe he's having a good night. <laughs> he might be tempted to think he, with his powerful stroke, can go through that flash flood current. My man's going to get his head smashed against something. I don't care how strong he is. He's going to die. This is Jesus' point. Why do the prostitutes and the rejects go into the kingdom of God first? Because they come to God saying, I know who I am. I know I need you. I don't know. I don't know how to live. Forgive me. Help me. Lead me. I'll do whatever you say, Lord. You've shown your goodness and trustworthiness. I'll stop doing whatever you ask me to stop doing. We come, they come humble and teachable. It's the religious, arrogant, stuffy that have a hard time, a hard time with God's grace. Let me give you one more passage shows you something about the way Jesus affirms us. In John 9, something interesting happens. They get this man that was born blind. Jesus heals the guy. And the Pharisees find out that Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath day. He was not supposed to do anything in their mind on the Sabbath day, even though he's God who created the Sabbath day. Another story, another message. Anyway, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees, these wonderful religious leaders. Never before has anyone, this is the blind man talking now, never before has anyone heard of someone causing a man born blind to see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It goes on. They replied, you were born completely in sinfulness, and yet you presume to teach us. So they did what? They threw him out, threw this man out of the synagogue. But what happens? When Jesus heard what had happened, he went and what? Found the man. Jesus finds this guy. He's always the seeking savior. He always comes and he seeks us. He always comes and affirms us. He was going to see to it that what these guys, uh, the damage they attempted to do, it would be undone by him he affirms us and some of us here even though we've experienced the acceptance and the affirmation of Jesus we know that he loves us we know that he doesn't see us the way others do we know that he looks at the heart and not the outward appearance first Samuel 16 7 you don't have to put it up on the screen um, still we're at times if we're honest we're still tortured by some of those words that we've heard when we were younger or maybe as an older person even, those caustic, hurtful, categorizing, condemning words. They have a way of sneaking back up on us, even though we know that's not the way Jesus sees us. How many of you ever heard of phantom pain? Can I see your hands? Phantom pain? Phantom pain comes to people that have had amputations. For example, if I had my arm cut off and I had phantom pain, I would still feel as though I had pain in my arm, burning pain that drugs usually will not do away with. They're, they're doing some experiments with brain science now that they might be able to alleviate. Anyway, I think Christians, real followers of Christ sometimes experience phantom pain and some of those categorizations from our past, some of, those, some of that condemnation from our past. It still hurts. It still wounds. It, it still fills us with shame. Sometimes it fills us with anger. Sometimes it drives us to try to disprove its relevance or validity. But there's a better way the way is just determining, I'm going to see myself the way Jesus does. And I'm going to surround myself with people who see me the way Jesus does. And I'm not going to surround myself with people that just want to continue to categorize and condemn me. I'm going to immerse myself in God's grace. 
And I'm gonna seek out the affirmation from his people as often as I need it, because sometimes we need to have ourselves and our acceptance with God affirmed. Let me close with a story that just gives one beautiful, beautiful picture of everything I've been trying to say in this particular message. Back in 2012, November 2012, Times Square in New York, it was a cold November evening. There was a guy, his name was Lawrence DePrimo, a police officer. He was on counterterrorism duty in Times Square, New York City. And um, as he was there, he noticed a homeless man who was on the street who was barefooted. DePrimo said it was so cold that night, I had two pairs of socks on. And here's this elderly homeless guy with no shoes whatsoever. He says there were some people that were laughing at the elderly man who had no shoes. Well, DePrimo gets it into his head that he's just got to do something about this. And he goes up to the elderly man and he says, sir, don't, don't, you, don't you have any shoes? And the old gentleman is very humble, very polite. He says, oh, don't, don't worry about me. I, I, I never have shoes and I, I'm fine. I'll be okay. But bless you, sir. Bless you. This homeless man says. I don't know if DePrimo was a Christian or not. I just know that he couldn't let it go. And he goes down to West 42nd Street into a Skechers store. And he asked the counter person, he said, look, I, I need a size 12 boot. He had asked the homeless man what size shoe he wears. He says, I, I need something rugged that'll, that'll endure. And he buys a $100 pair of boots. And he goes back and he gives them to this homeless man. Here's an actual picture. Actual picture. The only reason this picture was caught, DePrima didn't know, didn't care. There was a lady, a tourist from Arizona. Her name is Jennifer Foster. She witnessed this whole thing. She snaps the picture, puts it on the Facebook, the police Facebook page in New York. And of course, it's, it's gone into uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, you know, feeds now. And you probably, perhaps some of you even saw the story on TV at May TV. And this guy epitomizes everything I'm saying here. He, he didn't see a bum. He didn't see a derelict. He just saw a human being made in the image of God. And it didn't much matter how he got there to be shoeless. It just mattered that he was able to do something about it. And instead of categorizing this man, the article goes on and talks about how most New Yorkers, the guy in the Sketcher story said, most New Yorkers just see this every day. We become numb to it. We walk by it. We don't care. He said, but this guy saw a person just like Jesus, he, he saw the heart. So maybe, maybe the point of this message for some of us is this. Maybe there are some people that are in our lives and they are really dinged up. They've been categorized and condemned. Maybe you know about it, maybe you don't, but you know there's something there. You know there's, there's an edge to them or you know there's a, a painful component to their life and maybe, maybe Jesus wants to communicate through you to them that they matter, that they can be acceptable, that they can be forgiven, and they can, they can have the fullness of life in God's kingdom. Maybe, maybe you and I are passing them by, or maybe we're even categorizing them. And, but now God's saying, you've got you to gotta see what you haven't seen before. Some of us, we're the ones still. Maybe even though we've, trusted Christ again, reconnected with God, we're, we're still being driven to disprove one of these 
categorizing, condemning terms that we've received into our soul, maybe when we were just young kids, and we're still fighting to disprove it, or maybe we're balled up in that fetal position, and we're just fatalistically accepting. Somebody told us we're a bum. Somebody told us we're a failure. Somebody told us we're worthless. We're no good. We'll never be any good, and we're just accepting that. You'll never be loved. You're ugly, and you're just living with that still in your soul. You can absolutely, you can absolutely end that starting today. Yes, you're going to have to go back for affirmation, like I said. But starting today, just say, man, I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to see myself the way Jesus sees me. He, he really, really cares about every detail of your life. He knows who you are. He knows how you got to be who you are. And he stands ready to turn your story around. And many of us can say, He's changed my story. And some of us, he still wants to do that. Maybe there's one or two here, maybe more. And you know, you know, you, you've been trying to figure life out for a long time. And you know today, you can sense it, you can feel it in your soul. The living God is here today. He is calling you, come follow me. And somehow you know that's the answer that you've been stumbling around looking for. Will you put your trust in Christ and become his follower this day? Let's pray. Father, we know your spirit is here and active. We pray that you will just wrestle with their hearts until those eternally good things occur. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.